I am going to do some gardening and things today. Well, I, I'm not doing some gardening. I'm pulling up a couple of dead plants and repotting an aloe. It's sort of gardening. Yeah, it's plant faffing. Yes, I'm doing some planty faff today. Uh, well, in lighter news, the world's not quite as shit as we thought. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so last time we recorded was during that weird purgatory period of... Yes, the election perineum. Yeah. Will they, won't they? America and fascism. Um, <laughs> oh, they won't. Thank fuck. Um, yeah, so between recording the last episode and releasing the last episode, it came out that uh, Trump has been voted out and Biden is going to be the new American president. Oh, I'm so enthusiastic about Biden now. I, I wasn't, but just the contrast between a normal, seemingly well-meaning man and, and Trump. Trump is just like, oh. Don't, I'm fully aware that Biden is problematic in many, many ways, but he's yeah, yeah, yeah. not Don't Trump. Us, but he's not Trump. <laughs> he's not Trump. That is exactly. enough for me. Exactly. It was really great timing, actually, because I, I'd i been checking the news like constantly for mm. that whole week. And then it was on the Saturday. Uh, I'm in a like bubble with an American friend yes. and she'd come over for dinner. And so we had both like finally decided, you know what, fuck it. We're going to stop looking at our phones for an hour. So we did, oh, we put them to one side, had a lovely meal, um, sort of drinking and chatting. And then she got a message, so she picked up her phone and then we both saw at the same time that Trump had been voted out and it was ah. amazing. And then we went outside and I know like it's really annoying that people let off for fireworks for like an entire week around the 5th of November, but just on that night we didn't really care. It was quite nice to go outside and see fireworks when Trump had yeah, been voted out. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't crumble too much that night. I like the... I'm, Oh God, I hate having to preface everything with, I know, I know social distancing, but I know, I know social distancing, but I do like the videos of everyone celebrating in the streets in America. Yeah. Oh, this fucking pandemic. Dim, pin, dimmick. I mean, I'm actually quite enjoying this lockdown, but... Yeah, no, you look like you're living your best life, to be honest, mate. <laughs> I haven't left the house in like a week, but apart from that... Yeah. I've, t- I've had this week off work. Um including most freelance work. I did a bit, couple of jobs, but I've only had to leave the house for dog walks, really. So it's been nice. I approve. Uh, I've not got as much housey stuff done as I intended to, but I assume I'm now more well-rested in my soul as a consequence. So, Well, I kind of semi-gave myself this week to be lazy in that I haven't really done any big housework jobs and no. I haven't worked out, but I have still been doing that course all week. Yeah, you have learned how to do HTML and CSS, so it's not really complete downtime. But apparently, it seems like you find that pretty much unbearable, so I'm going to... Yeah, no, actually not doing anything is terrible. I spent the last lockdown doing nothing but playing PlayStation. I felt disgusting at the end of it. Yeah. Well, yesterday is now I tried to have like a proper, ooh, pamper relaxation day, and within two hours I was setting up a Settlecast and system, so... <laughs> oh, God, you'll love it, though. I'll send you some screen grabs <laughs> that could be a good procrastination job for me it took me a minute to remember how to say procrastination there yeah i know we've not had a lot of sleep but <laughs> yeah but that's okay because we're in a highly emotional part of the book and we cope very well with emotions when we're sleep deprived and vaguely hormonal so we'll be good yeah i'm sleep deprived hormonal and it's friday the 13th during 2020 Ooh. so nothing can go wrong <gasps> there's a million to one chance
All right, then. Uh, I think we've got quite a lot of rambling to do. So, Do you want to make a podcast? Let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And today is part three of our discussion of Reaper Man. Uh, note on spoilers before we dive in. This is a spoiler light podcast. Obviously heavy spoilers for the book we're on, Reaper Man. Uh, but we'll avoid spoiling major future events in the Discworld series. And we are saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there. So you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. A journey across 300 light years done in only a second or a few years i don't know what we worked out as at the end but depends on the dimensions uh, so some follow-ups dispatches from the round world we had some we had we had so someone was listening to some old episodes of the podcast specifically i think it was mort where we were discussing whether or not summoning death was necromancy mm-hmm. and uh summoning apparently summoning death is not necromancy because that's mm-hmm. summoning the dead and it's made very clear that death isn't dead he's the act of dying and doesn't deal with the dead unless by accident Excellent. That's from Ethel T. Blast Beat on Twitter. Someone else replied with a further clarification. Uh, Aubrey Illustrates replied, further clarification, to be very pedantic. The mancy means divination. Necromancy is divination via talking to the dead, not raising the dead. So it's not necromancy unless you're asking death for odds on who wins the FA Cup. Which we might be. Well, I mean, I don't Which they really often care. are. They are asking him advice What's going things, on, aren't they? Yeah. But he's still technically not dead. He's dead. All right, well, it's something Mancy then. There's a bit of Mancy about it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's good. We also had a couple of follow-up issues on Reddit, which I finally checked for the first time in ages. Um, Sorry, I keep telling you to go there and then don't go there, listeners. Um, (laughs) There was one post from a you, as in user, uh, Lee Simjurfage. I'm sorry if that's an actual name and I just hashed it up. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say it's Jeffrey Michael backwards. Oh, fuck, yeah. Oh, it's a vampire. Look, if if I lived in Ant Warpork, I would be drained of blood in the gutter by now, let's be honest. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so A, they went to a mustard museum, which is pretty fucking cool. I really want to go to the mustard museum. Um, and B, apparently in America, Montgomery Ward, which I assume is a department store because also Sears mail catalogues were popular for the same reason, a rather indelicate one, I'm guessing, as a Discworld almanac. Yes. Uh, Jeffrey Michael also pointed out that Canadians get all of their swearing out of the way on the ice rink, which I hadn't thought of. And that makes a lot of sense. It does. And when you finally watch Letterkenny, you'll get some beautiful demonstrations. I will watch Lesser Kenny, I promise. It's faff. I know, I know it is. It would be a lot easier if we weren't in this dimpendemic and I could sit down and make you watch it. uh, Some other follow-ups. Last week we were talking about 4X, a continent on the disc that was only briefly mentioned. Yes, it had a brief mention in last week's episode. Oh, with the fresh sunlight. Yes, yes, Yes. I remember. Uh, But I was having a look through the annotated Pratchett file to do a bit of research for this week's episode and i just want to highly recommend we'll link to it in the show notes that all of our listeners go to the annotated pratchett file and read the annotation on about the continent of 4x because it is lengthy and wonderful 
Uh, is that the annotation for Reaper Man or for... Oh, for Reaper Man, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. There's an explanation of the corks on pointy hats. Ah. Uh, and then there's a very long thing where they're trying to find um, some st- very, very stereotypical advert created by the Australian Tourism Commission that involves uh, the phrase throwing a shrimp on the barbie that has involved people getting in touch with the annotated Pratchett file, finding the actual advert and eventually linking to it on YouTube. Did I tell you while I was in Australia, I had shrimp on the barbecue for Christmas Day? You have mentioned, and yeah, I think they that's... do call them prawns, though. So. Well, <laughs> that ruined all of my illusions. I'm sorry. Oh, and one last uh, sort of little follow up. There's a moment in this book which I think adds to our discussion of can you murder a dead person? <laughs> is that there is a discussion of um, how do you save the life of an undead person on page mm. 245 in my edition? So, yes. A, a dichotomy. Oh, I don't think surgery is involved. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's rapid fire with the puns, isn't he? Yes. On this one. Yeah, somehow I don't hate it. I never did. I never do. You know how I feel about puns, Francine. I know, which is quite odd, really, considering you do like Pratchett so much. Um, I don't think there's two pages of Terry Pratchett's work that don't include a pun. I love Pratchett. I love Pratchett. I challenge you to find two pages. <laughs> I'm not going to. I love Pratchett. I love Pratchett's use of puns. I just don't like puns because I'm not good at doing them quickly. So I really hate when two people get into like a little battle of fish puns or something and I just have to stand there going, uh-huh. Cod. <laughs> oh, Cod. Anyway. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Francine, would you like to tell us what happened previously on Reaper Man? Sure. Previously on Reaper Man. Enact more pork, chaos and compost reign, challenged only by the Unseen University's faculty and the Undead Support Group's limited faculties. Blissfully unaware, Bill Dawes settles into his new role, briefly, before having his internal dichotomy challenged by a tiny human in peril. After a metaphorical, metaphysical and literal slap in the face, good old Bill gets into the spirit of humanity and lends a little of his own to the stricken child. The end is even nigher than it was. Amazing. Sorry, I didn't give you much time to have your coffee there. That's all right. It's way too hot anyway. (laughs) I just burned my face for the sake of caffeine. Uh, So this time on Reaper Oh, yes, do summarise. I've done the summary a little differently uh, because the stories are so disparate, especially in this section, and I will talk about that afterwards. So first up, the events of the Wizards and Windlepoons. Uh, we begin with the wizards battling dastardly trolleys. They tra- chase the relentless wheeled contraptions through Ankh-Morpork as Windle and his companions research the end of cities. Windle learns of the city of Khan Lee and the reality of predatory city parasites. The wizards resort to floral arrangements in their efforts against the mobile menaces, but are tragically overwhelmed. As Windle arrives on the scene, he realises everyone has rushed off and chooses to do the same, but sensibly. A pyramid of twisted and mangled trolleys lets out mysterious sail flyers. Citizens of Ankh-Morpork rush to look at the marvellous structure being formed, summoned by its horrific not-music, which thankfully doesn't affect the Fresh Start Club. Uh, our ragtag bunch of undead enter the mysterious shopping mall structure, looking for the lost wizards. Instead, they find Red Shoe. They face new horrific soldier trolleys and find frozen wizards in horrifying positions. As most of the gang wrangle trolleys and the wrangler to evacuate the wizards, Windle stays behind to confront the queen of this capitalist ant's nest. 
Recognising a good trope when they see one, the wizards rush back in to assist their undead colleague. In an explosive confrontation and implosive, and with the aid of a not-so-shy schleppel, the shopping mall is taken down once and for all. Satisfied, the wizards, Windle, Mrs Cake and the gang meet for a celebratory cup of tea and congratulate themselves on a confusing job well done. Windle, in his final moments, goes back to the bridge and finally comes face to face with death. Properly this time. Meanwhile... Oh, yeah. In Bill Dawes' life, he begins working in the fields after a boozy lunch and races Ned Simnel's combination harvester, exhausting himself in the process. During a hellish hangover, he realises he has mere hours left of the life he's sharing with the small girl and there'll be a new death to contend with. A storm rages as Bill fights to get the harvest in with Miss Flitwood's help, while Ned fails to kill a sharp scythe. As the harvest is saved, Death 2.0 arrives to pose and preen, and Bildor, Miss Flitworth, and the unconscious young girl make a mad dash to town on Binky to collect a ghostly scythe. Death confronts his sequel, but finds he has no undead weapon to hand. In a terrifying confrontation back at the Flitworth farm, Death finds himself with a few more minutes to spare, thanks to Miss Flitworth, and defeats Death 2.0 with his trusty old farm scythe. An angry combination harvester comes for Bill, but a camshaft incident prevents it from going all the way. The unconscious young girl now fully alive and well, Death goes to confront the auditors on a mountaintop. Home and safe in his study, Death ponders the memory of Bildor and reads of lovers long gone. He goes to Asriel to beg more time. Minutes in hand, Death shops for romantic gifts and goes to woo Flitworth. He accompanies her to the harvest dance. As the last waltz rings out, Death takes Flitworth to spend her last minutes in an avalanche with her beloved Rufus. Home, he holds on to one last memory, creates golden fields, and agrees to keep on the death of rats. <sighs> book has like three endings. Yeah. Well, so this is the thing. This is, uh, this is something... Mark Burroughs mentioned in his book, which is that Terry Pratchett's quite often said he wished he'd used these two stories in two different books. Yes. And I think that's no more clearer than in this section. They, The stories don't really mesh, apart from Windle and Death coming together at the end. The shopping mall bit specifically just doesn't really fit for me. Yeah, I, I think, I can't remember if it was the first or second episode we did on this, but I did say I didn't have a problem with it. However reading the end again it does become more clear just because of the the clash in tones there's such a clash in tones between the shopping mall confrontation and all the action movie stereotypes and those funny references yeah and what's happening with buildor and i just don't think it like you could quite easily do this book as the buildor story with a smaller Wizards B plot that still has Windle not dying and excess life source making the swear words appear and then have the shopping mall thing as a separate book. I was trying to think to myself, I, sh- I should have counted as I went, how long a book it would have been just Bill Door bits. It would have been very short, but I think it could have been fleshed out. Yeah, it would have been <laughs> fleshed out. Very. <laughs> it would have been very beautiful, but I'm not sure if Pratchett would have been happy with the tone of it then, because this is well, that's why mi- early mid-Pratchett, about- which means he's a lot more joke heavy yeah well i think you still could have had that i think you still could have had a wizard's b plot i just don't think the shopping mall b plot works yeah it's very specifically that plot that i think i nearly did three separate summaries and sort of had windle a bit separate to the wizards but then it doesn't really work because that's Windle's true in the because windle as character is surprisingly uh what do i want calm not Great. not 
it's very sweet. Mad and you cap. could have yeah. <laughs> you could have had a B plot that was Windle the swearing manifesting and the fresh start club. And just not the city parasite thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that could have been maybe a, a bit thing. more about the ghosts or something like that, yeah. Exactly. I think there would have been enough to flesh out the death story without the shopping mall. Not that I dislike the shopping mall plot. I think it's very no, that's funny. It, yeah, it just yeah. doesn't quite work for me. Yeah, it would have been a a good B plot in another story or one of a, a plot in a wizard story with it. Yeah. Yeah. I do see it now and I understand why Pratchett came to feel that way. However, still It's still a great book. Currently my favorite Discworld book. Yeah. It's up there. It's 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 overtaken because I'm really easily swayed by the latest thing I read, so I'm yeah. sure when we get to the other two in my list of three. It's top ten for me. It doesn't quite reach top five. That's cool. Or the build we need to make revised lists because I think right at the beginning we made little mental lists and then we've been doing a lot more practicing this year. There has been quite a lot of practicing. We What's do your do. top five? Ooh, okay, so off the top of my head and in no uh-huh. particular order, yeah. Nightwatch, Amazing Morrison's Educated Rodents, uh-huh. uh, The Truth, Monstrous uh-huh. Regiment, and probably lords and ladies like it's definitely a witch's one but i'm not sure I, that varies which which is one which which is which <laughs> yeah once we've done next month which is abroad will be my favorite which is yeah yeah absolutely that's cool so i've got reefer man night watch the last continent and then the other two spots in the top five do change a lot but i'm going to say right now because I'm looking forward to it, which is abroad is in there, and um, probably interesting times. I was going to say you always like cite interesting times and small gods as quite high up mm. for you, don't you? Yeah, I do. small gods will always be in top ten, but I don't know. Helicopter and loincloth watch uh, definite examples of helicopter parenting from Mrs. Cake again, who assumes she's nice. invited anywhere Miss Miller goes. Okay, uh, and then just generally strongly implied. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bat is launched upwards. Yeah, that's that's a bit helicopter. Much like a helicopter isn't. Um. <laughs> I mean, the auditors basically appear as grey robes, which are sort of like big loincloths. I think if we're going to start stretching that far, Joanna, then... <laughs> Look, I am the queen of tenuous links to things. That is our entire podcast. What a lovely large loincloth you're wearing tonight, Joanna. It's a ball gown. <laughs> Your words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> All clothes are loincloths at heart. Technically. <laughs> Same way all dogs are a little bit wolf. Yeah. Uh, so. You had a note before we started. Oh, yeah. I thought, as I was reading, it occurred to me that because corn and wheat are used interchangeably in this book, that might be slightly confusing to some people. Um, corn in British English traditionally is meant as the dominant crop of that region. And so in Scotland, corn would be oats. In England, as this is referring to, corn would be wheat. In America, corn is maize. And so the two became interchangeable. Ah. Um, and so when it's kind of oscillating between saying cornfields and wheat fields, that makes sense in British English, but wouldn't so much in American English. I so didn't know that. Their edition might have that edited, actually. But Yeah. Interesting. I think Jack taught me that, being Excellent. a farm boy. I have still got a toddler-sized bag of popcorn that I'm honestly just going to throw away because I really don't like popcorn that much. 
why did you take it home? Well, it was only going to go in the bin anyway, and I figured I'd probably eat some of it, which I have done, but <laughs> oh, good. I haven't really made a dent in it, to be honest. It's a very big bag of popcorn. I, I don't know what I'd do with that much. I quite like salted popcorn, and I don't know what I'd do with that much popcorn. You get sick of it pretty quickly. I always assumed most of it was going to end up in the bin. It's yeah. just, I figured I'd try and take some first. Yeah. Anyway, uh, should we go on to, I think your quote is before mine. Yeah, it is. As Bildor is pretending to meet Death Mark II, and Miss Flitworth asks, Have you got any last words? Yes. I don't want to go. Well, succinct anyway. Which is, in that this bit. case, very sweet, poignant, and funny at the same time, I thought. That bit did give me a bit of an emotion. It doesn't help also that it reminded me, and I. I don't think Russell T Davies was referencing this book as far as I know he's not a big Pratchett fan but the David Tennant's doctor yeah. and the last thing he says is I don't want to go and yeah. that will never not make me cry. Yeah. I like to think there was a subconscious referencing going on there. But but yeah, I thought that bit was very sweet. You're gay. Okay, so I picked this quote. So a single line of this quote is probably one of the most quoted Terry Pratchett lines. Uh, especially when talking about the great man himself. But I forgot how beautiful the actual whole quote is. In the Rantop village, where they dance the real Morris dance, for example, they believe that no one is finally dead until the ripples they cause in the world die away, until the clock he wound up winds down, until the wine she made has finished its ferment, until the crop they planted is harvested. The span of someone's life, they say, is only the core of their actual existence. It is really beautiful. It's one of it is one of my favourite Pratchett quotes, and I forgot just how beautiful that whole paragraph is because so often people just quote the. No one's really dead. I think really the concept is what's become. Away. Yeah, I think the concept is what's become kind of viral. Yeah. Um. But the full yeah, which it's, makes sense. But the full quote is gorgeous. Yeah. It is just a beautiful thing. I'd quite happily have that read at my funeral. Sorry, I'm assuming yeah. you'll end up vaguely in charge of my funeral arrangements. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, I think, we're working off that assumption. Yeah, especially as I'll be faking my own death anyway. <laughs> Costa Rica, baby. Hell yeah. Yeah, it's... Oh, I forgot we were going to run away to Costa Rica and get married. Whatever happened to that? Uh, you got married. I got married. Neither of us got married to each other. And then the yeah. pandemic. Oh, well. Mentair travel was difficult. Yes, there is that. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, yeah, the 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 ripples thing is really not people seem to take a lot of comfort from it and I definitely see that def, like in the case of Pratchett where the ripples just never going to stop. But I feel like if I was thinking that when in in context of somebody I knew, I'd almost be always worried about that last thing stopping. That's always such a strange thing. Uh like well, let's talk about death and grief. We're talking about Reaper Man. Okay. But there is always that little thing of you wonder when the last thing will be, especially yeah. in like the early days of grief where like quite often what you're doing is admin. And then it becomes... It, it's very hard to describe it. It goes from you're dreading when the last thing will be because that means it's done to you're almost looking forward to the last thing that will be because it's then it's done. And it's not that you yeah. want to forget someone and it's not that grief will totally end because grief does never really end it just becomes something you live with and I, I don't mean that in a bad way you know it just it changes you and it becomes a bit of a part of you um but it 
becomes a you can be comfortable with it now and it can be laid to rest because the last thing is done yeah and I think that's a really lovely thought that goes around the ripples thing that someone's life is has more around it than just the core of their existence there's almost this blur and fade out around it yeah so it's yeah it's like a slow yeah like you said a slow fade out instead of an abrupt stop mm. yeah I, I can see how that's nicer yeah that's cool I'm I'm quite an overly sentimental person and I don't mean that in a just overly emotional way I mean I get very attached to concepts and things in a way that is not always great for me and so yeah. I would worry about like the the clock that you need to keep wound or do you know what I mean but, absolutely um, my most recent brushes with grief have taught me to be slightly less sentimental yeah because all that means is that then someone else has to do it for you and stuff like I'm and I mean mostly with physical things here, it builds and builds yeah. into this unbearable pile. Yeah. So obviously I keep things that mean a lot, but I don't yeah. feel like I have to keep something just because there is sentimentality to it. Like yeah. uh, in the case of, so like, I think I've, I have actually said on the podcast that my mother passed away. Yeah. Uh, the sensible sentimental thing is keeping the notebooks full of old recipes the overly sentimental thing would be to also keep every single half full notebook of curtain designs and dress designs and invoices. Yeah. I have done the former, not the latter. Yeah. That makes sense. I've, um, yeah, I've, I've I've never had to deal with that yet. I've never had to deal with like a massive grief event. So. Well, luckily when you go through it, you'll have a handy grief Sherpa. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I have (laughs) many. I'm thinking about hiring myself. That's a much better name than therapist. (laughs) Right, should we go on to characters before this gets really depressing? Yeah, yeah, we'll bring it back to depressing later. <clears throat> oh yeah, we'll definitely get depressing again in the end. <laughs> um, I want to start with, it's, a lot of the new characters are just silly little references, but I really like them. One of which is, I think, our first reference to Vermine. No, it's not our first reference. It has been before because I mispronounced it on the podcast and I remember that. I think it was one of the really early books as a side note. It was in there. Uh, it, might, it might have been like a Colour of Magical Light fantastic one. Yeah. But these are the these are the ancestors of the lemming who have learned uh, learned to abseil down cliffs and build little boats to get over streams rather than just throwing themselves off cliffs. <laughs> so I like them. They're very sweet. There's also a reference to golems. Yes. Uh, great big Not- chap made out of clay. You just have to write a special holy word on them to start them up. Yeah, where, where was that? What, what what context was that again? That was when they found the wizards frozen in the shopping That's mall. That's right. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I won't it's go into... quite it. a while till they come back, isn't it? Yeah, I think this is the first mention of Discworld golems. I won't go into the whole mythology around actual golems now. It's really interesting, but uh, yeah. there's a later book that I will do that on properly. Yeah, it makes more sense in that one. Yeah. Uh, but they're here. There's also a reference to, and again, this is a little footnote reference, but I enjoy these. A small but persistent and incredibly successful Cassanunda the Dwarf. Ha. Honestly, the name makes me giggle far more than it should. Famous for his stepladder exploits. Yes. Cassanunda. Uh, and oh, yeah, there's also the high priest and the other priest of Ofla <laughs> who take turns. That bit made me properly chuckle. I know. I really wanted to point that out somewhere. I love this. This is the uh, temple of the jeweled temple of doom of Offla the crocodile. 
that gets very few worshippers because of all the traps and there's a fun little Indiana Jones reference in yeah. there. It's like one of the few movie references I probably got in this book because it's a lot of action movie references. Yeah. Not really not a really. genre. Not, not my top genre. But it's just lovely. They just sort of sit and play card games and uh, take turns being the high priest. I like that after the thing they're ostensibly guarding is actually taken, they're just like, well, look at it that way. Look at it this way. Who's uh, who's going to know but me and you? Ah, <laughs> exactly. Fair point. <laughs> Can I wear the hat? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then on to obviously the, the biggest character really of this section, which is Death 2.0. Boo, hiss. He's the baddie. This so I thought this was quite interesting. The death two point is what death is death slash buildor is facing. It's what yes. he's scared of. The actual confrontation takes seconds. Yeah, they rear off against each other. Death knocks him out. Done. They yes. chase each other around the town and the farm a bit. It's so built up to be such a not villain. Like the this whole book is death is facing death. Yeah, He is facing death 2.0 because of the auditors. That is the villain of the piece. And then the actual confrontation is nothing. And really, like it's almost like what death is facing is the end of someone else's life and how he deals with having humanity. And that's his actual conflict of the book, not... Yeah, I'd say also like he's almost had the battle before he has the battle. That's what I mean. The conflict within, yeah. within himself is a much more interesting conflict yeah. than... Uh... And it continues after the fight as well. Yeah. There's some great moments that he moans about the new death posing. Yeah. <laughs> I never posed. I like that he can tell that he's going to turn up at midnight just because he's like showy enough to flash up against the lightning on a hilltop. Oh, yeah. This is like one of the things that the books come back to quite a lot. This whole idea of narrative causality. And I quite like the fact that death is because he's slightly outside of humanity. He can he knows the narrative causality thing to use it to his advantage. And I think yeah. that's something Pratchett does really well. All the the books are always aware of narrative causality. Yes, and yeah. play with it, but and they're the, briefly referenced through whichever straight man character. Like, yeah, it could be Rincewind. It could be, yeah. It's quite often someone who is in some way a little bit held apart from humanity, who knows the story goes this way and this is why I have to do it. Like uh, Victor in Moving Pictures, who's become yeah. so much more than just a person in that moment because he's playing the hero. Or uh, Granny Weatherwax quite often is someone who takes advantage of the story. Yes, yeah. Which would be a fun thing we get to talk about next month. Also, shout out to Death 2.0's skeletal horse that uh, eventually ends up belonging to Miss Flitworth. Who, uh, cheap to feed. Begs the question, does it get rubbed down or just given a very good polish? <laughs> but I love the fact that originally Death slash Bill Door is kind of like resigned to this fate and he has to fight the guy and that's it it's when he sees he's got a fucking crown on that he actually gets angry yeah it's i'll get into that a little bit later but it is it's kind of the difference between being the guide and being the cause yeah i think like he wants to be the ruler he wants to be a deity Mm. and that's very different from just being the person who turns up or the yeah. anthropomorphic personification who turns up, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to have to get better at saying anthropomorphic personification. Enunciate. Um, so on to, like, obviously existing characters that we're checking back in, in and we've been talking about death. I think it's the way death slash Buildor is written is such a clever division of two characters because they, there are differences between the two and it's subtle, but it is there. 
Yeah, it's hard to tell sometimes until, I mean, except sometimes to the point where Pratchett kind of points it out, where he's mm. like, oh, that was very death thought, or that was Bill yeah. Dor coming to the front, and but you like end within up, the inner monologue. Yeah, and then you end up with uh, death at the end, remembering Bill Dor, Yeah, as if it is a separate person. I think it's a wonderful, I mean, I think the whole book is wonderful, but it's a particularly amazing bit of writing. There's a really good quote that's said by Bill Dor. I've never been very sure about what is right. I'm not sure there is such a thing as right or wrong, just places to stand. And that's a very human thought, almost. Yeah. Or it's a yeah. very death thought put into very human terms. Yeah, it. it's... I guess Bill Dawes is like another example of the, the what's going on elsewhere in the book, where the belief in something creates the thing, so... Yeah, he, he has believed in the human and created it to the point where he can then separate it from himself later. It's not yeah. just a. Yeah. But I think it's kind of ironic that one of the most human things death does in this book is when he is being death and not Bill Dor, and that's when he makes his plea to Asriel for more time at the end. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. It's uh, there's no hope but us. There's no mercy but us. There is no justice. There is just us. All things that are are ours, but we must care. For if we do not care, we do not exist. If we do not exist, then there is nothing but blind oblivion. And even oblivion must end someday. Yeah. It almost sounds like an emotional plea, but then at the same time, it's clearly a kind of metaphysical logic that Azrael agrees with. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, in, almost inexplicably, he, he grants death this frivolous little favour. Yeah, I, I honestly think he just did it to piss the auditors off, and that's fair. Oh, yeah. yeah, they are super annoying. Like, even if they were necessary, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm up for making your day a little bit worse. Also, one of my favourite death moments in this book that uh, isn't really dram dramatic and is a bit silly is when he resummons all of the spare deaths back to himself. Yeah. And then sort of goes, oh, I'm missing a bit. And the death of rats is just very determinedly clinging onto a beam in the barn still. And a little skeletal paw, not unkind, on the little ratty shoulder. <laughs> Squeak. So other characters to briefly check back in because they had some good moments. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a really sort of sweet moment for the Dean. Um, I'm trying to find the actual line, but it's something along the lines of uh, the Dean himself didn't know what he'd been... Ha he didn't know when he'd been happier. For 60 years, he'd been obeying all the self-regulating rules of wizardry, and suddenly he was having the time of his life. He'd never realised that deep down inside, what he really wanted to do was make things go splat. <laughs> and this turns into a lovely character moment for the Dean because he is the one that gets caught up in things. Yeah. It's amazing that he didn't realise he wanted to make things go splat before, considering he's a wizard. But I'm, I'm happy that he got there in himself. And the Dean is also where we get most of these big action movie references, which, as I said, I'm sure a lot of them have gone completely over my head because yeah. there's, I know there's a lot of reference to Alien and Aliens, like where they're saying uh, large, uncontrollable bursts. That's uh, an uh, Alien reference. And I know that tying a bit of stuff around his head is Rambo. Yeah, that sounds Rambo. Uh, I'm going to recommend listeners look at the annotated Pratchett file, who I'm guessing actually picked up on. All the references I missed, yeah. yeah. Anyone who enjoys movies. I got the Alien sort. reference. Yeah, was it? I've, Which I've I'm very it. proud Have of. Have I seen Alien? I've probably seen Alien. And no. It's so not, like... it's one of those movies that like parts of it are so famous that I'm not sure if I've seen it or if I've just seen it referenced so many times it feels like I've seen it. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. 
there's also there's i don't really have a lot to say about the senior wrangler other than red cully's fantastic name got the same urgent grasp of reality as a cardboard cutout proud to have one <laughs> team <laughs> which makes me happy uh so also the not Ferratis get some great moments. We get an insight into their home life. It, they they become a certain type of British echo couple. He ended up doing it himself, didn't he? I said, did it myself. Yeah, I love those <laughs> couples. They're hilarious. I could watch. Sorry, them we're for late. Hours. The traffic was terrible. Oh, terrible traffic. And it is always just the husband, like just repeating <laughs> yeah. the last two lines. But I think it's quite sweet that they sort of. They need a crypt for proper because they're proper vampires, but they're having to DIY it. Same with yeah. the moat. Well, you know, in this economy. It's no life or afterlife being a lower middle class wholesale fruit and vegetable merchant with an upper class condition. <laughs> and there's a lovely line about uh, genti- gentility meant all sorts of things, Wendell thought. To some people it was not being a vampire and to others it was a match set of flying plaster bats on the wall. Yes. Takes all sorts, doesn't it? I just like the way they've sort of absorbed vampirism into their middle-classness. It's it's a very funny look at a certain type of elderly British couple and a certain class thing that we've talked about before. Yeah, and you just end up with this this twee... Not, twee vampires. Not pretentious. Pretentious isn't quite fair. Aspiring. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very low stakes. Yeah. <laughs> stakes. <laughs> that one wasn't on purpose. See? Puns. Puns, oh. Joanna, you can do it. They're inside there. How Oops. am I fucking punning? I'm not about this life. <laughs> um, and then Windle would be our... Yeah, I've totally marked the wrong page for that. I'm doing really well here. Oh, that's cool. So Windle's ending uh, is on the brass bridge as Colon sees him right at the end and then wanders off just in time to miss it. Yes, I thought it was a re- I thought it was really lovely. It was. It was nice how he described a kind of clockwork ending as well, because that had been referenced a few times in the book, clockwork and the winding down, you know, with yeah. the music box and all that. And it was, it, although it almost seems like it was there because it was necessary for the two protagonists to meet, it was nice for them to meet finally. And it was, it was sort of a, the moment of sort of a, oh, well, where have you been? Yes. I thought it was yeah. lovely. And they'll never be aware of each other's adventure, of course. Well, obviously death is, but not in any way that is meaningful as Bill Door. No. There's also, um, it's just quite sweet that one of the last things Windle does is sort of arrange that Lupine and Ludmilla will get there happy. And that's right after the Ripples quote, it's saying one of the last Rippers of the world will be yeah. at the full um, moon when they're both the same shape. Running across the moor. Yes, under the moon. And I just think that's, I, I like the very quiet little background romance there. Yeah. Pratchett never really writes like these big romances, but he writes these very sweet little background romances into stories that. Yeah, I liked um, Wendell Poon's kind of moment of definite realization where he goes, 20 days till the next full moon. Well, something to look forward to. Yeah, I like that he he's sort of going off to whatever his afterlife will be quite optimistic because he knows he's left a nice little thing in the yeah. world. Yeah. It's almost that uh, leave the world a better place than you found it. Wank. Yeah, definitely. So do we have any locations to catch up with? Do we have new locations? Well, there's the mall. Oh, yeah. That's kind of a character, kind of a location, isn't it? Yeah, so this sort of springs up outside Ankh-Morpork in the Vile of Trolleys. Uh, and it's it's very strange because it's it's something Pratchett does very well as he describes something that uh, that exists, that humans yeah. know about, but because yeah. it doesn't exist in the disc world, 
Yeah, like the cinema and moving pictures. Exactly. Yeah. And he builds, a, he does it very well when it's a horrific thing, like the cinema and moving pictures, like the mall. Yeah, Eldritch it's, twist. Yeah, it's a very slow horror thing. And the fact the things that are weird and confusing for the Ankh Porkians are things like the fact that there is so much glass in these big windows. Yeah, yeah. Plate glass windows. Um, I I imagine he's got a bit of a thing against them as well. I remember Bill Bryson's uh, notes on a small country book um, has long rants about the British high street ruining itself with plate glass windows. Yeah, so especially I haven't been they're reasonably to, modern. <laughs> not even because of the pandemic. I haven't been to an indoor shopping mall for probably well over a year because it's just not yeah. something I really do. No, yeah, like we don't have one in our town, and if I'm in a town that has one, there's much more interesting things in those towns to be doing (laughs) but they are it's an odd thing they're odd places yeah and you can see his vision very clearly on this one i think and it's gross yeah it's great (laughs) especially when the weird pink tubes and stuff start coming out yeah exactly yeah i also like that i don't know if it's a happy ending but the ending that the trolleys get when no one was looking the last surviving trolley on the disc world rattled off sadly into the oblivion of the night lost and alone uh, and it's generally thought on worlds where the more life form is seeded, people take the trolleys away and leave them in strange places, and therefore people have to be employed to bring them back. But in reality, those people are actually hunters stalking the trolleys across their lives, the world, and uh, forcing them into a life of slavery. Yes, <laughs> that will horrify me slightly next time I have to actually shop in a supermarket. I've always quite liked the idea of wild trolleys there out and about. Also, well, catch one wallowing in a river because of where the place I work is and the fact that it's near somewhere that has trolleys that are quite often taken off and go missing normally by drunk people yeah my workplace now has like three or four Marks and Spencer shopping trolleys just sort of lying around that they use for things like bringing wine up from stock rooms because they get left in the driveway it's just like well we might as well adopt them well it's nice of you to shelter them rather than allow them to be herded back into the life of slavery well yes we take them in we look after them we feed them well (laughs) Do you want to do a little break before we go on to the... Uh... Yeah. My method for getting back into the blanket fort is very sexy and dignified. Absolutely, it is. I should see me a minute ago. I had to clamber over the back of the sofa to get to my under-the-stairs cupboard, which is where my coffee stash currently resides. Excellent. Right, we're making a podcast, aren't we? We are, in theory, certainly. Little bits that we liked. Little bits we liked. And we're kicking off with polite swearing. Oh, good. Fucking so excellent, is... darling. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking marvellous. This is, uh, so We as we ended the last section, we got to uh, the point where Rick Cully's swear words started manifesting. Yeah. Which brought me much joy. And so this is them trying to think of uh, ways to swear without swearing. Yeah. Uh, such as poot and sugar. You want me to say poot. <laughs> Do you have any favourite polite swear words? <sighs> Fiddlesticks. Ooh, fiddlesticks is a good one. How about you? I'm very bad at not swearing, as some of our listeners may have uh, noticed. I can turn most things into an oh gosh or a oh mmm <laughs> in the worst case scenario. Bums is a good one. I like bums. Oh bum. Oh bums. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourites. I don't know why I was obsessed with the Spy Kids movies as a kid Mm. uh, and watched them repeatedly. And the one of the moments that made me laugh out loud was the younger going, oh, shit, Taki Mushrooms. 
And yes. I still giggle whenever I eat shiitake mushrooms because of that moment. Oh my god, you just brought back a memory of me. I, I I had that one on video as well, and me and my brother going, "Oh shit, taki mushrooms!" was like a whole bit we did for years. That's amazing. I love <laughs> that in forever. Oh, uh, now I want to rewatch the Spy Kids movies. Yeah, I wouldn't rewatch the first one. I'm not sure the others will hold up without my. Well, the second one, uh, I, where, where was I? Which from? had the thumb people. That was the first one. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's the one I like. The second one was like one of the only kid-friendly in-flight movies when I was flying back from god I was I was somewhere in America I think we were flying back Mm -hmm. from Boston I think that was this weird long trip my mother and I had and I think I watched the movie like I watched the movie it was it was this weird long trip we did across America so we flew to Chicago spent Mm -hmm. a few days there then went to San Francisco went from San Francisco to Boston I don't think you've ever told me about this trip oh it was a very weird trip uh, drove down to Vermont for a few days to see my aunt and then went back to Boston, spent a few days there before we flew back. Uh, so obviously I was messed up and jet lagged and ended up watching Spy Kids 2 in various hotel rooms and then watched it like four times on the flight back. <laughs> and I don't think I've watched it since then because I watched it so many times in short succession. Yeah. <laughs> I think I probably could watch it now. Well, we'll get to it. It's quite low down the list of things we need to get around to, but I did like those thumbhead people. We'll find some clips on YouTube. Also, Alan Cumming. Which one's he? <gasps> Can't believe you just asked me that question. He's like the big villain in the first movie, but it's also it's Alan Cumming. He's one of the best actors ever. Bear with me while I Google that. Oh yeah, I know him. Sorry, I'm, yeah. you know I'm shit with names. He's amazing. He's in so many things. He was Nightcrawler in X Men Two. Yeah. Uh, he's very famously played the uh, what's it in Cabaret many times live. He was also. Oh, God, I can't remember what it's called now, but there was like a really, really terrible 80s BBC sitcom where he played a very camp bitchy flight attendant Oh, uh, that I think you can only find on YouTube. And if I can find it, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's hilarious. Okay, that sounds good. Um, sorry, what were you on about? Polite swearing. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was all I really had to say in that. Boing, Francine. Um, <laughs> so when the uh, the harvester, uh, minus, importantly, the three-eighths griply, falls to bits dramatically, we get a... There was a jangle, a clatter, and then the last isolated boing, which is the audible <laughs> equivalent of the famous pair of smoking boots, <laughs> which is beautiful. It's, it, it's, again, a tiny, tiny comedic trope that we need to draw attention to. It's like you just we can all hear it perfectly. It's boing, like when uh, a big antique dresser falls down and a single whole plate rolls away and takes a really long time to settle on the ground. Well, that almost happens, doesn't it, when uh, Death 2 is killed and his crown rolls out. Oh, yeah, there's that Although too. slightly more dramatic than comedic, but yeah. I think the actual dresser moment happens in a later book, actually. That's not yeah. spoiling a major future plot point. It's yeah. not a major plot point. <laughs> it's very important dresser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, boing is also... I can't hear boing without thinking of the thing in Scrubs, the boing whip. Boing whip. Yes. Oh, God, Scrubs. See... Fuck me, there's so many things that I want to rewatch, and then so many things that I've never seen or read that I really should do first. And then I realise life is finite, have a small crisis, and this is a perfect book for that. So, Joanna, exclamation points. Exclamation points. This is a little line, um, five exclamation marks, the sure sign of an insane mind. Yes. And I brought this up because we've already had a similar quote in an earlier book. And the way you started that then. sentence was like, I brought this up because I've noticed your multiple punctuation use recently. This is an intervention. It's a very convoluted <laughs> intervention. 
Okay, so I will say that whenever I have to do um, like vaguely sort of official tweets, I know I do this on the podcast account a lot. I end up using a lot of exclamation marks when I used to, to run show social. we're nice, we're friendly. When I used to do social media for a local bar, I used to overuse exclamation marks as well. I have to stop myself from using them in emails. Yeah, I usually go back and edit my emails to make it full stop heavy. I once managed to send an email that had no exclamation marks or apologies. And it was a vaguely official email to do with some theatre stuff. And I have never been prouder of myself. I've not done it again since. No, no. Once in a lifetime opportunity, that kind of thing. Oh, exactly. Comes off a million times, a million out of one times. So we've had the multiple exclamation point uh, or multiple punctuation quote already, haven't we? This is the second time it's come up, I think. Yeah. And so people always argue about what the right quote is because there's... Because it's both. There's three in total. There's another book that will come up. I've forgotten the first one now. I'm trying to remember which book it was now, and it's bugging me that I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was Weird Sisters. Yeah, it was down as my favourite quote, so I can just check the show notes. But yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Weird Sisters, and it yeah, was something to do with right. the Duke. Yes. Um. <laughs> so we already talked a bit about the narrative causality thing that I really like. Yeah. Um, which just so midnight fun. specifically. Yes, he's you think going is to the trope. Yeah. Yeah, it's, he's not going to turn up at quarter to twelve if he could turn up at midnight. Yeah, it's something Pratchett uh, likes to kind of work around a lot of the time as well, isn't it? Because I think in a later book, when we're on about the moon, we're saying how the full moon is always sort of the witchy one. But actually, yeah, give us all to the half moon and that kind of thing. Yeah, he's very good at taking the tropes and then deconstructing them. Yeah. God, that sounded very fancy, didn't it? Oh, it did. Oh, it did. It did. Uh, so what do we have? We have gold on black and typography. I'm not sure which one comes first. I think gold on black is last. So the typography moment, it doesn't really matter if we're chronological, but this is... No, probably nobody's going to arrest us. Asriel's big yes. Yes. That takes up most of the page. sorry. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Which in itself, I really love it because it's such a big striking moment on the page. Like you never get that. And it goes right to, at least in my copy, I'll hold up to the camera so you can see, but it does go right to the edge of the page. Ooh, very nice. Yeah. Mine's not quite as good as that. I read about this in Mark Burrow's book and in the hardback edition, it was very carefully done. So you would turn the page and see the massive yes at the top of the page and it would be a surprise. Oh, that's much better. Yeah. And then that was <laughs> screwed up in the paperback editions All and Pratchett wasn't very happy about it. And there's a good quote I got from the annotated Pratchett file. Oh, yeah. uh, when questioned about this, Terry said, do you really think I'm some kind of Dumbo to miss that kind of opportunity? I wrote 400 extra words to get it on a left-hand <laughs> page in the hardcover and then Corgi shuffled people around in the production department when it was going through and my careful instructions disappeared into a black hole. Go on, tell me more about comic timing. Oh, I fucking love him. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fact that he wrote ex- he, he wrote 400 extra words. Tell me how to write properly. Considering the page beforehand has that beautiful thing I mentioned earlier, Death's Plea to Asriel. Words, yeah, I wonder what the 400 words were. They were probably, like, speaking as a sub-editor, I know this pain very much, trying to pad out or take out certain words just to try and make the section start on the next page or something like that. Yeah. Um, but 400 words is quite a commitment to then have thrown back in your face like that. I know, it makes me chuckle. I, I feel be- very bad for him, and I would love to have had the experience of reading this and turning to that and having the surprise of it. I'd have just loved to see him say that to the journalist. Come on, tell me more about comic time. I can absolutely imagine his tone of voice as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then the last little bit, like, la, 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 last little bit I liked right at the end is when death is 
adding cornfields to his domain. And I like it because it is a beautiful mental aesthetic. Mm. Uh, yeah. The blacks and the shade of blacks and the endless nothing. And the not quite rendered distance. And he's like, you know what? Click. And then we have cornfields. And then he's like, not quite. And then they're ruffling in the wind. And just the yeah, just the gold on black is... I, I love gold on black. Yeah. It's a gorgeous aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and it's the fact that he took that home with him as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then his little awkward bit about... Albert, just just piss off. Yeah. <laughs> right now, I would like to be alone by myself. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was lovely. That was a beautiful moment. Okay, so on to the bigger stuff. Let's talk cities. Yeah. So I've got a, a couple of rabbit holes. Um, cities ending, when Wendell Poons is trying to work out how cities die, not how they're killed. Mm. Um, there's lots of examples of cities kind of gradually ending through things like economy or climate change um just general progress um, transport routes are a big thing as well yes that's interesting i didn't go down that route yeah this is something i've read up on in the past and i i, I don't have this huge wealth of facts in my brain but there are times where less cities but villages and towns have almost gone because uh, a motorway has been redirected or a train ah. service has been redirected and it sort of slowly fades. It's, there's a village quite local to us now and it's uh, a lot of people will define villages. It has to have a post office, a church and a pub. Okay. And this village is sort of slowly fading into, I, I don't think the pubs open anymore and I don't know how active the church is. And I think there's like a very, very tiny post office that's open once in a blue moon and you have to summon a chicken and look at its entrails <laughs> to work out when it's going to open. <laughs> And I, I briefly worked at this pub before it closed. And it was it was a very strange thing because it was a village on its last legs. And it would take a lot longer for a city. But I can yes. see it happening still. Yeah. Like almost how cities, some cities are built just by villages glomming together. Yes. I imagine that at a few points in history, the, the outskirts have started wandering off. I thought I'd have a look at um, the complaints about shopping malls killing cities, which is obviously what well, this is quite heavy handed reference to yeah <laughs> and more broadly the evils of consumerism obviously is the big reference here but um yeah it, it's quite fun to see how much has already changed since 1991 so when this was written obviously a big concern certainly in north america and i'm guessing also in the uk um was that out of town shops um the supermarket uh you get the complaint a lot here had ki were killing the high street because they yeah. were drawing foot traffic away from the high street because it was cheaper you get everything at the same time there was parking all of mm. this stuff but since 91 which is not very long ago it can't be because that's when i was born um and i'm ever so young <laughs> <laughs> um like it almost seems quite quaint that malls would be the death of the high street now doesn't it yeah um, because now it's online shopping yeah exactly so this it Looking this up took me almost immediately down the side path uh, of what kills a mall, because dead malls or zombie malls are a thing now. Yeah, um, that's really fascinating. I really yeah. want to go walk around one. Yeah, absolutely. We almost had what we had a tiny one here, the little shopping center that slowly died. But it is when a mall oh, has yeah, a lot of empty shops, no footfall, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and it's often brought about acutely by the loss of an anchor store. Mm. which is like uh, often a department store 
but uh, in our case, because we had a little one, it was probably Topshop or something moving out that killed it. And a lot of them died, the department stores, I mean, or restructured when like uh, big, bo- big box stores, they call them in America, like Walmart, kind of mm. changed that whole sector. Um, and then the retail apocalypse, which is a rather dramatic name, I couldn't help but click on that, started around 2010. Right. Uh, as you can imagine. Like, a lot of it was down to overexpansion, and then there was a massive recession, um, uh, and then e-commerce. Yeah. So, like, the Amazon effect, I think it's called, uh, in retail circles. Yeah. Uh, and now, even now, the big push to shop independent is still very online. Yeah, yeah. And uh, pandemic this year. And also, well, yeah, like, pandemic the, yeah, this year. It's like a little footnote now, because we won't know the proper impact but i think we can imagine it's going to be fairly catastrophic on the high street yeah i was talking about this with jack recently actually i can't think which shops like categories of shops are going to survive this gradual apocalypse for retail like it's going to be it's going to be things you want to look at and touch and even that's not possible during pandemic times yeah i think independent clothes shops will struggle yeah Yeah. uh I think things like little independent gifty shops, you know, the ones that aren't really one specific shop, but sell lots of little nice things. Yeah, I think they'll survive. like 10 of those, yeah. <laughs> I love those shops. That's where I do all my Christmas shopping. Yeah, no, I, I do love them. Um, and then I think probably bookshops. I think bookshops will survive. Yeah. Um, I'm. There's been quite an interesting resurgence into high street butchers and greengrocers. Uh-huh. And those businesses are actually surviving quite well during the pandemic because people are ordering online from them. Yeah. We've got like a little pop-up green grocer thing that happened in Barry, haven't we? Like everyone's almost kind of going back to small town shopping again. Yeah, there's like a cute little extra market thing that's popped up. I haven't been Uh, there yet. I'll get around to that. I I don't tend to do the high street butcher and grocer shopping because then I have to carry it 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I shop online from independent butchers a lot. Uh, I would do a VegBox subscription, but you can't really get a good one around here. Yeah. Um, at the right time of year, Jack brings back carrier bags full of vegetables yeah, from the farm, the farm. And then, yeah. You have I such a sweet rural life there. every now and then. Yeah, I know. We have little forays into the good life, TM. Um, Don't get chickens. I won't. Jack says Terrifying I can't until we have a garden big enough that you can't smell them. Also, we have a terrier now, so... Yeah, that's not a good idea. Actually, um, if you're quite interested in the impact of supermarkets on high street butchers and greengrocers, I can highly Um, recommend, uh, it's one of my favourite books anyway, it's uh, by Jay Rayner, who's um, Uh the Guardian food critic and a very good writer. Uh Uh, His book, A Greedy Man in a Hungry World, talks about uh, consumerism and capitalism in the food industry in general. Okay. Uh, And he has two interesting side-by-side chapters, one talking about why supermarkets are bad and how they're causing problems with the high tree and then another one where he immediately argues against everything he's just said and talks about <laughs> the benefits of supermarkets on the economy ah interesting uh so yeah highly recommend that oh i like that i like specific sector books mm. um somebody recommended me one on the banana recently which i'm looking at i fucking hate bananas well don't tell the librarian okay well i suppose it's more Eek. for him yeah no exactly yeah he doesn't mind as long as you don't try and stimmy the flow no, no, I would never try and interrupt the banana industry. <laughs> Millennials no, are well, killing fuck, the... That's like genocide history in that one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, let's not go into the history of bananas or we'll never finish recording. The less said about United Fruits, the better. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, fuck, what were we on about? Oh, yeah, no, that was me. Cities. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that's probably <laughs> all I'm going to say about the death of cities and walls. But it was, in, yeah, it's it's interesting that the the thing he's parodying or making a point about in this is now out of date, but is it's still immediately a being succeeded by something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, I don't know how he would have tried to cope with anything internet related. I don't think he would have done in Discworld. Yeah, I'm not sure. It would sure have been how. hard to parody the continuing technological trends. Yeah. I... That's probably why he went Industrial Revolution. Yeah, probably. Anyway, anyway. Uh, should we talk about death? Yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> but like, as the anthropomorphic personification first, yeah, okay. ease ourselves in. Yeah. Um, so you looked up uh, various personifications and depictions of death. Yeah. So it was quite cool to see the two concepts of death side by side in a, as you pointed out, quite brief climactic ish mm. scene. <laughs> uh, despite quite a lot of research on this, I've I've got to admit, the second death still mainly reminds me of a Nazgul, of a, yeah, a Ringwraith no, I... from Lord of the Rings. I can't find anything it resembles so much as a Ringwraith. Yeah, no, I, I got Nazgul vibes there. Yeah, yeah. Heavy um, Nazgul vibes. There's nothing to say that wasn't what he was going for because it, it, he was a Tolkien fan. But yeah. um, but even so, I wasn't going to pass up a chance to read about various death personifications, obviously. Um, first finding that I think you'll like, do you know what a psychopomp is? What is a psychopomp? A psychopomp, uh, as opposed to a god of death, a psychopomp is like a guide or an escort that takes uh, the newly deceased to the next life. So think Valkyrie. Right. Um, think uh, Ferryman. Uh, what's he? Chanos? Um, uh, yeah. Ancient Greek Ferryman. Yeah. Or think Death in Terry Pratchett. Right. Um, as opposed to god of death who causes death, who this second death seems to lean more towards that. Yeah, he's kind of going for deity yeah. vibes. It's king versus farmer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple of cool ones like I came across. A snippet from the ancient Egyptian coffin texts of the Middle Kingdom. Uh, so this is like 2000 BC. So this is the earliest one I could find directly quoting it. Um, so it's, Save me from the claws of him who takes for himself what he sees. May the glowing breath of his mouth not take me away. Wow. Creepy, right? I love that. The the glowing breath as well reminds me of uh, like pale horse in its original meaning. So pale being that like sickly green, whitish color instead of just white. This Um, is the thing we talked about in Good Omens, the the Bible quote. Yeah. And it's the color I imagined the pyramids flaring and all of this stuff in in pyramids. Um, (laughs) What? No, the pyramids flaring were in Weird Sisters. <laughs> God fronting. Um, Hinduism's King Yama rides a black buffalo and carries a lesso, which I rather like. Nice. Yeah. And then on the other end of the cool spectrum, we have Korean mythology, uh, where you have the Netherworld Embassy, which I think you'll rather like. Uh, Saja, who is a psychopomp. He is a stern, strict bureaucrat. Um, so from the wiki according to legend he always carries a list with the names of the dead written on a red cloth when he calls the name three times the soul leaves the body and follows him inevitably (laughs) but you've got to imagine that in like a bureaucrat's voice so Joanna Hagen Joanna Hagen look there's no getting away from this Joanna Hagen (laughs) fine (laughs) fine so yeah I like the I was reading about the 
psychological reflections of a society. And then I went straight to Korean bureaucrat, bureaucrat one. I was like, ha, shade that is, thrown there. <laughs> that is shade. quite entertaining. <laughs> shade. Yeah, because you sent me uh, a list of sort of the most popular fictional depictions of death. And obviously mm. Discworld was at the top. But one of the other ones on the list, which I really like, is uh, Marcus Suzak's The Book Thief. Yeah, which I was saying, I, I can't remember if I've read. I feel I feel like I have, but if I have, it was when it came out. So yeah. I don't remember it really. It's one of my favourite books. I haven't reread it for a while, actually. Uh, but it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful book. So the idea of the book is that it's narrated by death. Okay. And it's, it's about a young girl in Nazi Germany, and she's uh, evacuated and taken in by a German family and obviously doesn't agree with what's happening, but is a young girl and can't do anything. Yeah. And it's sort of the small rebellions that they managed to find. And it's, oh, it's just, nice. it's a very sweet story. It's beautiful. And it opens with death saying, I'd meet this girl three times. And those things are sort of the framing devices around the yeah. book where she has brushes with death. Oh, very narrative symmetry. Mm. Rule of three, what's it? Yeah. That sounds um, nice. Is, it, uh, is that a young adult? It's young adult-ish. Yeah. But it's not particular. I mean, obviously, the protagonist is a young girl, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not particularly childish as a book. Yeah. It's just it's it's beautiful. It's really well written. There is a movie that I haven't seen, and I don't really want to. Um. Yeah. I mean, if you love the books and you've got all the images in your head, there's always a risk of displacing them. So yeah. So I'm not totally fussed about seeing the movie. Yeah. But I also do think it's quite interesting that we have. Uh, obviously, we have the Discworld death. And then you have the Good Omens death, and he is. We talked about this in Good Omens. He is such a different character. Yeah, he's he's yeah he's the harbinger of the apocalypse. In and I like the fact that because I always feel like that death was probably more of a Pratchett creation than a Neil Gaiman creation. I like that Pratchett was capable of creating two very different personifications of the same concept. Yeah, I think so. I think it. That's what would have happened if death went off on that path from the Color of Magic version. Yes. There's a lot um, of the colour of magic. So he got to explore both. Yeah, which is lovely. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so, yeah. Let's get a bit existential. <laughs> so that, fuck me, the last chapter, eh? God, I, yeah, I mean, I know it's not split into chapters, but the last moments yeah. of death and Miss Flitworth. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm counting the last chapter as from when he's sitting back in his office onwards. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is. The shopping. Oh, I love the shopping. <laughs> the, um... It's it's a perfect kind of blend of sweet and sad and funny that Pratchett just a, a, always does well, but occasionally does perfectly. And I feel this. It's so excellently balanced, especially sort of the moments of, uh, well, diamonds are a girl's best friend. And so he's asking if yes. the diamonds are friendly. Yes. And uh, to anticipate your next question, sir. I personally would go to bed with it. <laughs> <laughs> but also, it's, he do, he learns from all these lovers. He does this big, overblown yeah. romantic gesture. He literally gets more time. And I've yeah. already said multiple times how much I love his pre plea to Asriel. Yeah. And he gets more time. As, it's not just for Miss Flitworth. It's for him. It's that he can have one last human moment. Yeah. And it is... It's romantic, but it's not a romance, if that makes sense. It's not about romance between the two of them. It's about caring. Yeah. And it's brought back to earth by Mrs. Flitworth. By Miss Flitworth, sorry. Um, well, I'm going to the Harvest Dance. Yeah, exactly, yeah. There's Why would like, I go oh, this anywhere huge else? sweeping romantic gesture, and then he's back on earth, and it's dead stems. And 
it, it's the thing Pratchett does really well where you sort of have this highfalutin nonsense and then a slam back to earth at the end. Yeah. And so death gets all of these big romantic trinkets and is going to whisk her away wherever she wants to go. And she wants to go to the harvest dance because that's, yeah. of course she does. Yeah. And, and so she's 18 inside. And so yeah, as, she, and it's, as it's, the night goes on. She feels younger and they dance. Yeah. And, and it's, he takes us to where she wants to go. He takes her to the harvest dance. But then he dances with her and he gives her, he, he takes her to somewhere she hadn't thought of going while being in exactly the place she wants to be. Yeah. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's such a lovely section. And I, I know we said this was probably going to get all very sad and existential, but actually I'm, I don't think it's sad. It's, it's not, is it? It's, it, it almost feels like a little, a little gift from Pratchett, who's not very sentimental with all the afterlifey stuff, but yeah. who goes, and here's what I know you are all hoping for, which is to be reunited and to be put back exactly where you want to be, to go wherever it is with the person you need to be with. And yeah, it's, is that uh, he clearly very much loves Miss Flitworth as a character, I think, because. He it seems like he a... was trying to find her perfect ending as well. Yeah, just as death gives her the perfect ending, so does. Yeah. And that moment where she realises she's died mm. as they're listening to the last waltz outside and they finally stop dancing is such a beautiful moment because she accepts it immediately. Yeah. And she yeah. says, you know, when I see what life does to people, you, death doesn't seem so bad. I don't know. It's something people have always talked about in relation to Discworld, uh, where they've talked about grief and Discworld and how it's helped them process things. Yeah. This lovely idea that a kind death like this would oversee a loved one's last moments. Yeah. And obviously, I am an incredibly cynical atheist. I don't think a lovely Grim Reaper that a nice man wrote is going to turn up and comfort any of my loved ones in the final moments. I'm a bit dead inside. <laughs> But it's such a lovely thought. It is, and I think almost in the same way that a placebo drug will work, even if you know it's a placebo, the even though you know this isn't this... real, imagining that it is, it releases the tension a little bit in your brain. Yeah, yeah. it's an exhale. And this is the end, of, the end of this book is an exhale. Yeah. It is after everything has taken place and this huge session of dancing has taken place. Yeah. They very quietly exhale as he takes a to the avalanche and goes home. Yeah. I started crying at the music box. Oh, yeah, know. no. <laughs> I was with you. I sobbed through the last few pages. I mean, again, we've both done this while quite hormonal. Yeah. <laughs> which, probably <laughs> we <this> <laughs> which probably hasn't helped. We didn't but, think to add this to the spreadsheet. <laughs> but as I mentioned earlier, like having gone through quite a bit of grief over the last year or so, it's very comforting to read this kind of kind of grief. Yeah. Where, you know, Miss Flitworth has been sentimental. She has kept this small sadness with her throughout her life. She has kept the dress and the music box. But she has put them in a box and she has gone ahead and lived her life. And this is that thing I was saying about how grief becomes not something you get over, but something you comfortably live with. And not only you're sad for the rest of your life, but that it becomes a part of you and you carry it for the rest of your life. Because of course you do. It's an experience you've been through. Yeah. Uh, and 
I think this book does that beautifully. It shows a depiction of grief that is not sad, but a thing that lives with you and is almost in its way comforting. Yeah. So, yeah, that was Reaper Man. Yeah. What a lovely book. That was a lovely book. It's, uh, yeah. I think we should try and end on a happier note, though. So, Francine, do you have an obscure reference for Neil? I do. Um, Strip Fettles, believe it or not, Grimoire, is how Wendell Poons Lens learns about Carnley. trolleys. Yes. Yes. The city, yes, the city of Carnley, that's right. Um, and that is a reference to Ripley's Believe It or Not. Um, do you have any of those books? It seems I like something you'd have, you'd have had. I have had them in the past. They don't yeah. uh, currently live with me. I've also not been to Ripley's Believe It or Not, the London attraction. I am reliably informed it is everything you would expect it to be. Yeah, you need to be in the right mood for that kind of thing. I feel like no, I feel like London's the wrong place to go for that because to me, Ripley's believe it or not kind of thing is some stop in the middle of a long drive through America. Yeah, it's a house on the rock kind of thing. But, yeah, exactly. But the London attraction is one of sort of a series of big horrible buildings in Piccadilly Circus, and yeah. I will never be in the mood for it while I'm in that area because that is such a stressful part of London that if I'm there, yes. I am nothing but hunched over rage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it, it was um, it was American franchise. It was a newspaper panel first. Oh, so was it? it just yeah. Um, for people who aren't familiar with it, uh, it kind of it highlights strange events and uh, happenings and items that are so odd that you can't quite believe they're true. But believe it or not, there they are. Yeah, it's things like dogs that can fit a dozen tennis balls in their mouth. And yes, it is that kind of nonsense. It's the best parts of the Guinness World Records. It's the it's um, the oddest bits. It's the hailstone that fell through an old lady's roof and accidentally set off a grandfather clock that had been stopped for fifty years. That kind of bullshit, you know. And yeah. it's great and it's wonderful. And we should get a copy of at least one of them for our ever-growing archive of tangential reference. Um, <laughs> It occasionally even goes into other dimensions, it would seem. Mm. One, Strip fuddle. One interesting fact I read about it is that uh, there was an offer, at least in the early days of Ripley's Believe It or Not, that uh, a notarised letter would be sent if someone was demanding proof of oh. an unbelievable thing. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, I don't know um, whether... It always was in that case reputable. Maybe it was. In my head, I'm thinking of like an almost modernized freak show thing of like the side shops for it. But this is possibly the reputable version of that then. Yeah. The, apparently, to, I, I should have looked more into the physical locations. I didn't think about that. I was looking at the books. Mm, apparently, everything is 100% real. Awesome. All right. Well, if I remember, we'll put that in follow up mm. because I want to have a look at Oh, I so, expect yes. they're all closed forever now. Mm. So, yeah, so that was Reaper Man. That was, that Reaper was a Man. marvellous book. It was. And I nearly and didn't cry. So, well, <laughs> it, I mean, I cried while I was reading it, not during this episode. Yes. <laughs> didn't actually cry while recording. Well done, us. Yeah. If any of you would like to tell us about your thoughts on it, especially, I think we would like to hear about it. We'd always like to hear your thoughts. But, um, mm. but do get in touch. I would like to hear people's thoughts on one of the things we didn't have time to talk about, which is the the flight of birds, which is referenced several times through. 
Yes, the, the, prisoner, the prisoner watching uh, the flighting of birds and what that means to you. Hmm. And your thoughts on depictions of death and grief in general, especially in the Discworld. Yeah, that'll make for a really depressing follow-up section, <laughs> which is what we're all about. <laughs> Speaking of, so uh, because November has five weeks, excitingly, yes. five Mondays, we're actually going to be off for two weeks before coming back in December with some witches who are abroad. Yes. Uh, we may put out a cheeky little bit of bonus content in the next couple of weeks, but I'm not promising nothing. See if we've got time. During this damn pandemic. This damn... Well, I'm still working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, fine. But yes, in the meantime, get in touch with us. Tell us your thoughts, please. We do like to hear them. Uh, if you have specifically, <clears throat> and I know it's a bit early to be thinking of it, but if you've got any letters for the Hogfather, we're getting ready to start thinking about a Christmas episode early, existing. Mate. fucking mid-November. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Yes, yeah, so also please send us your letters for the Hogfather. If you would like to contact us, uh, you can follow us on Instagram at the True Show Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at the True Show Make You Fret. You can join our subreddit, r slash TTSMYF. Well done. I didn't have it written down today. And obviously, you can also email us all of your thoughts and your queries and Castle Snacks and Albatross Epods. And thoughts on death. And thoughts on death, please. Uh, the As a tree separate sh- attachment. Yes. Uh, no. The truth shall make you pod at gmail.com. Please don't sell dead al- send dead albatrosses. <laughs> Albatrossico yes. phallopatorius. Oh, my God. <laughs> 50 points if you get the reference. Oh, I don't. I need to get out more. <laughs> well, you can't. Well, I can't. There's a pandemic. Oh, God, I can't wait till we can stop saying that. I know. <laughs> Dominic Cummings is fucking off. That's nice. I just want to sit in the same room as another human being. I haven't done that for a really long time. Oh, I'm sorry. It's all right. To be fair, I do quite like my own company. I'm fantastic. You are. You're a delight. And I I'm don't even delight. mean that sarcastically. It still sounded sarcastic, thank you. I know, that's just how I speak. (laughs) And until next time, dear listener, I remember when all this will be again. Of course, a nice ending, isn't it? That's a perfect ending.